Today's Bible reading comes from Job chapter 4, verses 1 to 21. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. And now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is it not your fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope? Remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where where the upright cut off. As I have seen, those who plough iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion and the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from the visions of the night, when the deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face, the hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes, there was silence, then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the, in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in the houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening they are bitten to pieces. I mean beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is it not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die? And that without wisdom. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, church. It is a joy to be um, together, um, and we are right towards the end. This is the second last um, section of our series, which is titled Faith in the New Normal, and we've been working our way through Job, and it's kind of a mission to condense the Job into five weeks. If we were to do all 40 chapters by the end of it, you'll be bored because it almost says a, like the same things over and over again uh, as Job's friends try to make sense of his suffering. Uh, so we've condensed it to five, uh, five um, sermons uh, just to help us grasp the key message of uh, the book of Job. Uh, so we saw last week uh, we started off by looking at, not last week, the first week, uh, that true faith is coming to God to get God and not to get from God. Uh, for you to be a Christian, uh, for you to think correctly about God, uh, it's not so much um, coming to be a Christian because of the stuff you get from God, uh, but you become a Christian um, because you are going to get God. In other words, our relationship with God is not a transactional relationship. We don't scratch his back. Uh, and then he in turn scratches our back. So that's what we saw in week one. That chapter one verse nine is the key verse in establishing that for us. Uh, chapter one verse nine asks the question, or the Satan asks the question of God: uh, Does Job serve God for nothing, for no reason, for nada? Nje, just 
Surely there's a motive behind uh, his serving God. Surely all his wealth is the reason why he serves God. Uh, does he serve God for nothing? And so God allows the Satan to put Job to a test, to test whether or not he comes to God uh, for the stuff he gets from God uh, or whether he just believes in God for the sake of it. Week one, true faith is coming to God to get God, to get God and not to get from God. Christian, do you come to God to get God or to get from God? Uh, and obviously, we would say, <laughs> well, we come to God uh, for the sake of Him. Uh, and the question, this question is put to the test when you go through difficult moments because it's in those moments where this question is brought to bear. Do you actually serve Him? Okay. Week two, uh, we saw that the Christian faith often flourishes in times when we don't have the answers. The first two chapters make you think that you have the answers, but then you soon discover that according to God's answers towards the end, we haven't had the answers figured out. We don't know why Job is suffering. And very often we want to have the reason for his suffering because it allows us to understand God understand him so as to make sense of uh, his sufferings. Very often, when we go through the same experiences, we want to understand the reason behind our suffering. And we saw week two that Christian faith flourishes in times when we don't have the answers. Because when we don't have the answers, uh, we have a God um, who, who uh, is supreme. We have a God who is trustworthy, even despite uh, the not having the answers. Week three, we ended it off by saying that our experience of suffering is not a measure of God's faithfulness to us, or rather our faithfulness to God or our obedience of Him. Uh, so suffering is not a barometer. It's not a test for whether or not we have strong faith uh, or we have weak faith. Um, suffering is not that And very often we ended last week by saying that it is hard to live in Jobek and to grasp that. It is hard to be people who are smart like you guys are, uh, who have the answers, who when they don't have the answers, they hire somebody who has the answers. If you don't have the answers uh, at your job, you'll be fired. Um, so that's the world in which we operate, the world in which we have somewhat of a control of our lives, and it's very hard to comprehend uh, this kind of um, experience or this kind of thinking of God, and that's what Job helps us to do, to rethink how we think about God, particularly when we go through uh, times of difficulty. It's very hard to know that I can't work my way out of suffering. Um, it's very hard to comprehend that God who is incomprehensible if you live in Jobeg. Now we're going to um, look at another section of Job, and we're going to look at um, later on a triangle that we used last week. If you are not with us last week, we'll revisit that triangle. So I'm going to pray for us. Uh, if you can, please join and bow your heads as I lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for an opportunity like this on a cold Jobek evening that we've come to listen to your word. I don't know where each and every one of us would find ourselves, uh, but Lord, you decided uh, through your majesty that this would be a word that we would hear this evening. So Father, I do pray that you'd be with us. I pray that you would 
illumine the word that Jesus would shine this evening. And that someone who's finding themselves in difficulties um, would begin to see you differently uh, through the face of Jesus. I pray that you'd work in us, um, keep us, uh, and help us to understand this, your word, and help us not to just understand it, but to put it into practice. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Um, it is quite, um, quite common for a young man to go through difficulties and to have people who give them answers as to why they're going through those uh, difficulties. Um, let's consider Kahiso Mulefe just uh, for a moment. Uh, Kahiso is a 43-year-old uh, who is um, who's married, who just recently has been retrenched and also lost um, his wife to COVID. Things are not going well for him. Uh, he's left with um, children, and he's wondering where is God in all of this. He's wondering whether or not it is uh, worthwhile to continue in the faith. Um, Kakiso goes home to the northwest uh, to a place called Piti di Sulejang. Um, it is an actual place. It means how did the donkeys die? Um, it is an actual place in the northwest. Kakiso Mulefe, devout Christian, um, goes to his mother and just wails and weeps and explains to him, to, to her rather, some of the challenges that he's facing. And the mother is loving as he is. He says to Kahiso, well, I know that you are a Christian. I know that at that church of yours, they teach you uh, to forget your roots. Uh, but it is in moments like this where you need to remember your roots. How many of you know that similar story, that kind of story of remember your roots and go to a traditional healer who is going to explain to you some of the sufferings that you've been through. Uh, Perhaps the ancestors are not happy. Maybe it's because you never connected to your father's side of the family. Why don't we do uh, some kind of a ceremony to, to do that, to appease the ancestors. It is a father's responsibility to draw his son into the ways of the culture. But many are growing up fatherless and many are encountering difficulties and in those moments they are told that perhaps they need to reconnect. Just brew some beer and pour it out to appease the ancestors because they have this powerful phrase that they've turned their backs against you. Imagine that. Uh, the supreme deities, the supreme ancestors who've turned their back against you. Perhaps you need to go reconnect and burn incense and pray to them to look upon you with favor. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand as to whether or not you've been there. Many of you grew up in Midrand, so you don't even know what I'm talking talking about. This is impepo. This is what what is burned to reconnect with those who are dead. Slaughter a goat and appease the ancestors. Or maybe you go to a church that tells you you need to go wash yourself in a river that's flowing. Maybe you go to Devon. You've seen those five-liter containers. <laughs> to wash away the sins. Um, you wash away your sins at the sea, you put it back in the container and bring it to Jobek with you. 
<laughs> that is how it works. Uh, perhaps you need to slaughter a white chicken, two candles to reconnect. Now, this stuff sounds foreign to us. It sounds so far removed from us. But undergirding this concept we saw in week one is this thing called the retribution principle. And you might not be uh, somebody who came from this background, uh, but in each and every one of us, there is this kind of thinking that perhaps we've angered God in our actions. Perhaps we haven't done what we ought to have done. Sometimes even as a Christian, you come to church and you think, shucks, I don't know why I'm experiencing suffering. Maybe I need to be more involved at church uh, so that God will be pleased and look favorably upon me. This looks primitive, but it has a theology undergirding it. And you and I have a similar theology of approaching God, particularly in moments where we need God to help us. Uh, in the ancient Near Eastern thinking, this system worked, uh, this system of serving the gods, building temples for them, providing them food in a form of sacrifice, uh, providing them not just food but drinks so that they are appeased. The thinking is that the gods created people for labor. They didn't want to do those things for themselves, but they um, created people as an afterthought. Man, we're tired of working. Let's create people to do their work for us. So nobody served God or the gods in the ancient world for nothing. Everybody served the gods uh, as so as to appease them. So as they would scratch their back and they would leave them alone and give them good, uh, good, um, good fortune. This system didn't work because the gods were necessarily holy. So if you offend them, you offend their holiness. This system worked because the gods were needy. I wonder if you follow me. They were needy. They needed people. So if you don't serve them, obviously they don't serve you back. That system needed to work. Um, this system works not just in African traditional beliefs where... They would say, your grandfather is cold, you need to dress them. He's needy, he is a god, you worship, but he is needy, you need to dress him. This system works in, and is pervasive in Christianity today. The Christian concept, this Christian idea that we serve God um, and he will help us. And in moments when people go through suffering... We use that kind of system to comfort people. And the friends of Job appeal to this system to say, Job, this is an explanation to your suffering. Uh, so we're going to look at quickly a, a couple of verses uh, just to give us an idea and a picture of um, the answers that uh, this friends gave. We're going to look at three headings. One, the friends we have in times of pain, or rather the friends that Job had. Um, who appeal to this system, the friends we need in times of pain, or rather the friend we need in times of pain, and the friends we should be in times of pain. So number one, the friends we have. Have a look at chapter four, um, as Elipas, uh, one of Job's friends, speaks to, to Job. So Job obviously 
is conflicted. He just lost everything. This friends for seven days sit with him and say nothing, and we wish they had remained silent. Have a look at chapter 4, verses 6 to 9. Listen carefully to what they say the problem is concerning Job. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Verse 7. Remember who, who that, who that was innocent ever perished? Or were there, or where, where, where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow in equity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. What is Elipas saying to Job as he tries to encourage him, as he tries to make sense of his suffering? Well, he says, Job, as I look at your life, it looks like you're very confident in your obedience of God. And that confidence gets you nowhere because this confidence makes you bitter towards God. Just think about it for a moment. Just think about that. Does anyone who is innocent ever go through difficulty? Well, in the system, nobody who is innocent ever perishes. And he appeals to this principle, which is a principle that the Bible teaches, that you reap what you, what you sow, what you put on the ground, you will get out. If you serve God, things will go well with you. If you don't serve him, and perhaps you haven't served him, you need to consider that. Um, that is why you're going through what you're going. Have a look at verse 17 and 19. This whole concept coming up again. Can mortal men be right before God? Just think about that job. Can a man be pure before his maker? Have a look at verse 18. It is an argument from something above people. Mortal people cannot be perfect. Even his servants, he, even in his servants, he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. Job, just think about the angels themselves, that sometimes God charges them with error. How much more, how much more those who dwell in houses of clays, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like moth? If the angels themselves are not even perfect, what, what makes you think? Job, that your life is perfect? What makes you think that God is not punishing you for some type of sin in your life? The solution that he gives in um, verse 8, have a look at it. As for me, I would seek God and I would commit my cause. Verse 17. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. So this is Elipas's second, second speech. If I were you, I would repent. If I were you, I would acknowledge that I've sinned and turn to God. And maybe God will look to you. In favor. Chapter 8, this is Bildad speaking. Does God, verse 3, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the, pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand 
of their transgression. Perhaps it is your children. That is why they died. Uh, because much as you did sacrifices for them, maybe somehow God was punishing them for their sins. Verse 5, if you seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, he will in turn listen. Uh, so basically, you've sinned. What is the solution? You've got to do something right to appease God. You've got to do something right to turn away from your sin. Think about these friends that Job has in his suffering. How comforting is this? How comforting is it? Yet, in so many ways, this is where our mind runs to as believers sometimes. Because when you, when you sit with someone through pain, it is very difficult to not say anything. Just to sit there. So you want to encourage them. You want to say things like, maybe God is teaching you something through this. Um, Maybe he is purging you of sin. Whatever the issue is, whatever the reason is, uh, Kate Bola, who I love and I've been quoting, says, I've had a hundred of people tell me the reason for my cancer. Because of my sin, because of my unfaithfulness, because God is fair, because God is unfair, because of my aversion to Brussels sprouts. I mean, <laughs> no one is short of a reason. When someone is drowning, the only, wor- the only thing worse than failing to throw them a life preserver is handing them a reason, particularly a reason like this, a reason that theologically sometimes makes sense, a reason that Job's friends operate from. Have a look at chapter 11. Uh, We don't have time to go through the speeches, and the speeches on and on, they say this in in different ways. Have a look at Verse 4 to um, chapter 11, verse 4 to 6. For you say my doctrine is pure and I'm clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manif- for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. <laughs> what is this guy saying? Just, you got it, you got it easy. Um, if you understood what God understands, if you had the wisdom that he had, he has, then you'd know that this punishment is nothing in comparison to what you deserve. Now, this is a man who's lost everything, his children. This is a man who's going through difficulty, who's scratching himself with pottery. His life is a mess. Verse 14, what is man that he can be pure? In other words, you're not pure. On and on again. Or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous. Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one of, one who is abominable and corrupt. A man who drinks injustice like water. These are the friends that Job has in his suffering. The solution Elipas gives in chapter 22, verse 21, agree with God and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Verse 22, receive instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you'll be built up. If you remove injustice from your tents. Uh, this is 
ingrained in human thinking. Whether you worship ancestors, whether you call yourself a Christian, whether you believe in any other religion, whether you call yourself an atheist, what is the number one thing, as we saw last week, that atheists have against God? How does a holy God allow so much suffering? It is a problem um, of God that if we are people, then surely we don't deserve evil from him. Surely we don't deserve to be punished by him. What is undergirding that thinking? That God does punish us, and that is why we go through difficulty. Now let's think about that system as it works itself out in ancestral worship, for instance. I know that's a sensitive topic uh, for many because it's so intertwined with what we call our culture. Um, if someone says, uh, do things the Setswana way, that means this kind of stuff. You need to take it to the roots. You need to take it to the gods. What is undergirding that? It is gods who are needy, who need us to provide for them, who are angry because we haven't provided for them, who are angry because you haven't put up a tombstone for them, to clothe them, who are angry because, man, since you did a ceremony in 2005, however, like how many years has passed? Do you think they'll be happy? It is a system of needy gods with a transactional relationship. And whether or not you are, you worship ancestors or you grew up in that context, all of us have a transactional thinking and relationship when it comes to God. And so instead of engaging with somebody at the office, instead of offending somebody and saying that they're worshipping idols or whatever you say, I think there's better questions to ask about ourselves. Um, the better question to ask is, what kind of gods do we worship? What ideas of God do we have? And do those ideas help us in times where we need success, where we feel like we're not succeeding in life, uh, and in times of suffering. What kind of God do you serve? Because it's, very, it's quite possible to turn away from burning incense and giving alcohol to ancestors, becoming a Christian, and still adopting the same mindset, still operate in the same mindset, still approach God in a transactional way, still feel like I can give my money and then he'll bless me. Undergirding that behavior is the same thing. It is the same thing. We see this kind of thinking in the prosperity gospel. Scratch your back, I scratch my back. We see this kind of teaching when they use passages like this in the Bible that clearly teaches that God does bless those who are good to him and he punishes those who are not good to him. So the retribution principle somewhere is taught in the Bible, but it is not, does not mean that it is true in every situation. I don't know if that makes sense. So the retribution principle does work, right? If you sow maize, you're not going to harvest wheat. You're going to harvest maize. If you don't study, if you're a student, <laughs> there's no miracle that's going to happen. Whether you pray uh, to God, it's not going to happen. Um, you reap what you sow, but this is not true 
in every single case, particularly certain cases of our suffering. That doesn't always apply to everything. Listen to this Bible passage in Deuteronomy uh, 28. It seems to teach this principle. The prosperity gospel uses it um, to explain just how we approach God and how we think about him. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1 to 6. This is God speaking to Israel. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above. Somebody say high above. <laughs> say high above. Now we're preaching. Eh? Um, this, is, this would be me um, telling you to give more to the work of the Lord, um, to obey his commands And God will set you high above all nations of the earth. Have a look at verse 2. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. Somebody say overtake you. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the field, blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your head and the young of your flock. Blessed shall you, shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Hallelujah. Verse 6. Blessed shall you be when you come in, blessed shall be when you go out. And that's the song that we used to sing during offering. I'm blessed going in, I'm blessed going out. Father Abraham's blessings are mine. Amen. <laughs> um, so that is something the Bible teaches, right? That in God's relationship with Israel, it was a relationship of obedience and punishment when they don't obey. So Job is presenting a different voice to us. Job understands that often that's the reality, but sometimes life teaches us the opposite, that the righteous don't prosper. Um, Meanwhile, the wicked prosper. That is the cry of Psalm 73, that when the psalmist looks at the world, he sees the prosperity of the wicked, and he sees his own life of struggle. That in times, at certain times, the retribution principle does not work. And this is why Job responds to these guys who are saying, you have sinned. Because chapter 1 already told us that he hasn't sinned. Uh, He says, I've had many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. What kind of friends are you guys? With friends like you guys, uh, who needs enemies? Chapter 19 Verses 2 to 6. This is Job's response to his friends. This friends that he has in times of pain. How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? Your words are hating me. Verse 3. This ten times you cast, you have cast up reproach upon me and you're not, ash- are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I've erred, my errors remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace and arguments against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Um, even if I did sin, gents, like, is this helpful what you are saying to me? Verse 25 to 27, this is what we saw again last week. As he cries out uh, for a redeemer, he cries out for somebody who's going to plead his case uh, as we said last week, uh, at Tulima Donzela, who's going to keep the most accountable man in power in check. 
For I know that my Redeemer lives. And I've always read that verse to mean uh, the Redeemer, Jesus, and Jesus is a Redeemer. But this is not what Job is saying. He says, I want a lawyer who's going to speak on my behalf. And at last he will stand upon the earth. Before I die, I'm going to see him. And after my skin has been destroyed, he doesn't mean dying. He means that his skin is physically decaying. Yet my, in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold him and not another. My heart faints within me. After all this bombarding from his friends saying, you have sinned. Job cries out and says, well, this is, this is unfair because I know I haven't sinned. But in any case, I'm pleading that one day my case will be heard um, in court. And though my skin wastes away, in my flesh I will see God. And my day of justice will come. And so towards the end, we hear God's take on all of this. Have a look at chapter 41, verses 11. This is God's answer um, to, to it all, to the retribution principle. Verse 11, Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole earth, heaven, is mine. Who has given to me that I should repay him? Why do you think that I act as a transactional God. Just think about the nature of God. Um, the ancient Near Eastern pagan gods needed people to serve them. But God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible says, He has given to me. I don't owe anybody anything. Everything belongs to me in this world. Now, he wants them to think differently, us to think differently about him. God is not a transactional God. Now let's have a look at, as we close our first point, and that was um, the longest. Let's have a look at that um, triangle that we saw last week. Uh, So in this book, the friends are at the retribution principle, and they camp in there. So we have three different arguments, uh, three different ways that people try to understand the suffering of Job. Job does on his righteousness, and he says that I'm righteous, So either God is unjust to me or the retribution principle is not true. The retribution principle which says God or the wicked suffer and the righteous prosper. And Job concludes that God must not be just. That's why he's longing for a lawyer to plead his his case. Elihu says that God is just and I know that Job is righteous, but maybe we need to think of it this way. Maybe it's not because God is punishing us for our past sins. Maybe he's punishing us also for future sins, and that's how the principle works. And the friends, basically these friends that we have in our pain, all camp at the retribution principle and say, well, God blesses those who are good to him, and he punishes those who are bad. God is just, so therefore Job must have sinned. And what does God do at the end of the book? Well, he takes us away from this system and points us to himself. That he's a God who is not needy. And the place that we see that 
the character of this God. Well, it's throughout the scriptures, but the ultimate place we see that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus, we do not have a God who is needy, but a God who is giving, uh, who gives himself to people in misery um, so that you and I, if we claim to follow him, would give ourselves to people in misery. So the friends of Job dwell on this principle that God is needy, therefore he's punishing Job because he didn't fulfill his end of the deal. God says, I'm not needy, and the place we see that is in Jesus. Jesus teaches us and shows us the fullness of who God is, that God is not needy, but he is giving. He gave himself for us in our misery so that we would give ourselves uh, up uh, to others in times of misery. And that's the person we have uh, in Jesus, uh, this friend that we have in Jesus, this true friend that we need in our pain, which is our second point, the true friend that we need in our pain. In Colossians it says, in this Jesus, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. So in other words, when we look at Jesus, we see the character of a God uh, who is different. A God who lives, lives as Philippians 2 says, his place of glory to come into this broken world, not to give us answers, uh, but to be with us and experience our pain. One author says, our head, that is Jesus, left glory and came down to this traumatized world. He became flesh like us. He literally got in our skin. He did not, he is, he did not numb or flee the atrocities of this world. Or of our hearts. In Jesus, we see a God who is not needy, but a God who comes to give himself. A God who comes to experience life in this broken world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says in verse 6 that this is Paul speaking. He says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Uh, to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. How do you know God fully? How do you see him in all his glory? It is in the face of Jesus. What is the face of Jesus? It is a broken and wounded face. Um, a face of a man who came into our world. In Revelation, so that we're not just dwelling on Paul, in Revelation we see a picture of uh, John speaking to Christians who are going through difficult moments and he gives them a picture of Jesus as a lamb who's on a throne. A lamb who looks like you are slain. God is on the throne in Revelation but he is God who was wounded. A God who understands your pain and my pain. Who doesn't necessarily give answers um, to us, uh, but who gives us himself in our pain. Uh, one poet says this about this, uh, this, this Jesus. He says, our wounds are hating us. Where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars we claim thy grace. The other gods were strong, but you were weak. They rode, but you stumbled to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but you alone. Not any other God has wounds, but our God alone. This is a God who loves us, 
and who understands the things that we go through because he himself uh, went through suffering. That is the friend that we need in our pain. And that is a friend who understands us and he extends his hands to us that I love you and I experience suffering uh, for you. Uh, the hymn writer says, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. Oh, what a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit, oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptation? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. We can talk to God um, in our suffering. We can talk to God, and he's a true friend who is trustworthy, because in Jesus we see something beautiful um, about God. We see something majestic about God. Yes, we may not understand his ways, but we can catch a glimpse into his character through the Lord Jesus. And very often that is what we need in our suffering. That is the friend that we need in our suffering. And I think if we claim to be followers of Jesus, we need to always remember that people's experience of this friend called Jesus is through us. Now that might sound heretic, that we are Jesus to people, but that is how God has designed the system. So in other words, for people to experience this love of God, this love of Jesus, it's through us. This friends that you read about, this friends we give theological um, answers, perhaps we need to learn something from them about true friendship about what it truly means to be followers of Jesus. People who, are, who incarnate, who take on flesh, who take on our surroundings, who embrace people who are going through difficulties. That is what the incarnation means. And that is how the Bible uses it. That your God, the one that you follow, came from heaven, humbled himself. God do likewise. We ought to be people the people who, the kind of friends that people need, the kind of friends that people run to in times of need, who don't give theological answers, but who are there with people in their suffering. Uh, I'm going to end, end it off with just a few examples from our own church of how that plays itself out. Uh, but I want to end it off uh, by quoting this lady called Diane Langberg. Uh, he, she wrote a book called Suffering in the Heart of God, How Trauma Destroys and Christ Restores. She opens her book with the most powerful story of uh, the slaves in Ghana. So she went to this, um, this castle in Ghana where they used to hold millions of slaves who used to poop on themselves, who used to die in those slaves' uh, castles, who used to cry in agony and in suffering. And she says, as the talk, um, talk guide was taking them through this, um, this place, um, they asked them this question. What do you think sat above those uh, castles? And the answer is the chapel. A chapel where every people, every Sunday would go, pray, sing 
songs to God, give their money. They were prim and proper. They didn't suffer at all. It looked like this was heaven, right? Heaven is on top and hell is below. And so she reflects um, on this and she reflects on who Jesus is, the kind of Jesus who doesn't do that, the kind of Jesus who brings heaven down to the dungeons. And he says that the church ought to be this way. She says, what does heaven do? Heaven leaves heaven. It's place of comfort, songs, purity, plenty, and money to give. Heaven comes down. The church goes into the dungeon so that the dungeon becomes the church. God came down to lift us up. God came, became like us so that we might become like him. He came to this dung-filled dungeon we call earth and sat with us, touched us, loved us, and called us to him. And she continues to say, this is what the church ought to be. Uh, Friends of Job were not good friends. Um, In Jesus, we have a true friend. But Jesus calls us as the people of God to be those people who don't see church as this nice, prim and proper thing, but a, a place that prepares us for the agonies of this world. And can I just tell you that the, those abound more and more. If you just talk to people, you'll notice that we live in a messed up world. And we need to learn as Christians not to give petty answers to those, but to really say that God loves you and really show them with our own lives that indeed he loves them. Indeed, he took on human flesh. The powerful thing that Diane says is that the trauma of this world is one of the primary mission fields of the 21st century. The trauma of this world is one of the primary mission fields of the 21st century. You and I are called by God not to just come to church as awesome as it is, but we come to church so as to be equipped to go out there And I know that many of us, some of us, are going through difficulties. I know that very often in my life when I'm going through difficulties, I I tend to be just about me, right? I'm suffering. God, look at me. And, And what does that do? Well, it shuts us off from other people. It shuts us off from living out our mission as redeemed family. The trauma of this world is the one of the primary missions fields of the 21st century, we are to be out there um, living like Jesus. We are to be out there um, not looking for trauma because it will be there. It will be there. One of the things I love about this church as I look at Job's friends, as I look at the person of Jesus who gives us a different perspective of God, who causes uh, to be friends who give others a different perspective of God, that, hey, man, you're going through difficulties, but maybe God is not doing that to you. Maybe you need to come to Jesus, because in him you'll find a true friend, uh, someone who will bind up your wounds because he himself was wounded. One of the ways we do that is through our Care Connect. Care Connect is a ministry that deals with uh, young children who are going through some kind of loss, and one of the great pictures that I saw in this church is of a small Bible study group cutting up pictures 
of emotion faces so that Christina can go teach these children about the different emotions, emotions like sadness, and how they should feel those emotions, and how God wants them to deal with those emotions. That is Care Connect. That is a way in which Jesus displays his love. That is not a primarily a needy God, but a giving God. And he's given them Christian community for them through, to go through that. I look at somebody like Michael, like Little Otto, guys who are just regular dudes, chilling, hanging out with 8-year-olds, 12-year-olds, talking to them about God and the emotions that they that God has given them. That is a great picture. And obviously there were other women involved in that whose names um, we could go on, on and on mentioning them. That is a beautiful picture, isn't it? Uh, one of the other things we have is our pastoral ministry uh, headed up by Raphael. This is again one picture of what it looks like for the church to be in the dungeons. Um, a church that sometimes, not just Rafa, but the team of men, of women, driving two o'clock to Venda to sit with people in their morning. If that is a church that South Africa needs, it would be the church. Amen. Live groups and live group leaders accompanying people to mourn with them as they lost people. One of the other ones we have is Divorce Care with Vicky, who runs this over 13 13 weeks faithfully. Um, It is just dedicated to people who are going through a difficult season of divorce. I have a friend who's divorced, and he explained it like a, a, it's, it's like a plane crash, and you're trying to pick up the pieces from that plane crash. And so divorce care exists to help people pick up the pieces of what looked like a plane that has gone through a, a messy situation. That is what it means to be a true friend, in time of need. Grief share, mom, baby, and her team in this church, faithfully giving their time towards doing that, towards sitting with people in their suffering, helping them work through, helping them just to say, man, I'm, I'm wounded. I'm wounded. Not just grief share, the care and crisis center. The other day, we called them because there was a crisis in, on campus of young men and ladies and how they behaved. Uh, with each other, abuse, and that deals with that. Kathy gave up her Saturday night with her two children to come and sit with young women and counsel them through the traumas of what it looks like to be on rest. If that is what the gospel is, then I, I want in on that. I want to sign in on that because I think this is what our country needs, uh, this kind of church. And it is not just those ministries, but it is you guys. Also on a Sunday evening, on a Sunday morning, as you ask somebody, how are you doing? And they just say, man, I'm, I'm facing difficulty. Um, it is you. Being the true friend means you guys are those kind of people. And many of you do those things. Many of you whose names will never be celebrated up front, but that is what God has called us and to do. So let's just kind of recap where we've been. Uh, well, we saw Job's friends, the kind of friends that he had in a difficult moment who reminded him of some kind of formula, a theological formula, 
and gave that as an answer to his suffering. But we saw another friend, which is Jesus, a friend who comes to us to experience suffering, a friend who calls those who follow him to go do likewise. Don't you want to be part of a community like that? Let me pray for us. And as I pray for us, can I just remind you that next week we'll be ending off our series. It has been short, um, but there, there is probably answers. No doubt you have answers. I mean, not answers, questions. Um, and on the seeds there, there is a pen and a paper. Can I ask you to, to please be encouraged to write a question uh, and then come put it here at the end. So write any questions that you may have concerning Job, something that didn't make sense to you uh, or something that you need clarity on. And then next week we'll be tackling that. We'll keep the sermon short and then have a Q&A afterwards. So can I please encourage you, if you have any confusion, any questions regarding, please keep it to Job. Um, please keep it to the theme of faith, of suffering, and of understanding God. And then next week we'll tackle those. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that he came to our world to display your glory and your majesty. Uh, that in his face, his wounded face, we see you in your fullness. And so, Lord, although we have our own perceptions of who you are, our own ideas of who you are, I do pray, Lord, that you would rewire those. Uh, that you would rework in us a different picture of you, one that is not transactional, uh, that we will never feel like we can work our way towards avoiding suffering, or that if we're suffering, we'll never feel like you are punishing us for our sins or anything like that. So I do pray, Father, that you'd bring healing to those who are suffering. I pray for our family members. I pray for those that we know who are in need. Please empower us this week to be a display of your love towards them. Only you can do this in us. Uh, please strengthen our faith as we look up to a God uh, who functions differently in a world fixated with performance. So please send us into this week and equip us for your mission field. Uh, through Christ our Lord we ask. Amen.